time of this recording, we're still learning about the attackers who claimed more than 120 lives in a series of attacks in Paris. What we do know is that most of the attackers were either French or Belgian. But a passport found near the body of one suicide bomber suggests that he was a Syrian national who found his way to Paris through Greece and Serbia, common stops for Syrian refugees seeking safety in Europe. This discovery has further provoked the anxieties of many, particularly in Europe, but also in the United States, that the enormous wave of humans fleeing terror in their homelands has made it easier for extremists to export terror around the world. The Paris attacks will inevitably change the calculus for politicians weighing how to deal with a crisis that shows no indications of abating. So what can and should be done? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. Our guest today is Professor Jacqueline Baba, the research director of Harvard's FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, who holds faculty appointments at Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health, the Harvard Law School, and here at the Harvard Kennedy School, where she's affiliated with the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy. Professor Baba, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now that we've seen what's happened in Paris, uh, is that going to make things uh, worse for immigrants coming in trying to seek asylum? Yes, I think it is, which is very sad because in a way being exposed to the direct impact of terror at one level should make people understand why people in Syria are so desperate to leave and why they need protection. But of course, the consequence of the Paris terrorist attacks is bound to be further tightening of borders, further sort of muscle flexing by those who are against uh, granting humanitarian protection to refugees. So I think this is inevitably what's going to follow. What has the experience been for refugees so far who are coming from the Middle East and Northern Africa? I think it's been mixed. I think um, on the one hand, we've seen an outpouring of extraordinary humanitarian compassion. I think it's the first time in a long time that I can remember that many European publics have been ahead of their leaders, even their progressive leaders, welcoming people. And, you know, we've seen those very heartwarming scenes in Berlin and elsewhere of ordinary people just really taking taking these refugees into their hearts and their homes. Um, and that's been the great positive side of it. So, you know, tens of thousands of people have found sanctuary who had not had it before, people who had either been, you know, facing daily bombs in Syria or who'd been living extremely harsh lives in the neighboring countries in refugee camps or outside them. So that's been the good side of it. Um, but there has been a very, very harsh side to this migration, even up to now, I would say, which um, I think it's important to stress. The journeys themselves have been traumatic. There's something nearly medieval, I think, about seeing these tens of thousands of people tramping across Europe with all their goods and chattels and their elderly parents in wheelchairs and their babies in their arms or in pushchairs. You know, it it's, uh, seems an extraordinary way to, to manifest the need for protection. And, of course, we are all familiar with the figure that, that 
you know heart-wrenching photograph of the little boy Ayan Kurdi who who washed up on the shores near Bodrum in, in Turkey which really catapulted I think the biggest sort of outpouring of compassion but before that we'd seen up to 2,500 people a year drowning in the Mediterranean and we've seen these arduous journeys as I say across Europe we've seen really horrible encounters between border patrol guards and desperate families trying to cross. We've seen for the first time in Europe the erection of razor wire, not barbed wire, but razor wire fences between EU member states. First, of course, between Hungary and Serbia. Serbia is not an EU member state, mm -hmm. but then between Hungary and Croatia. Now fences are going up right across Europe. We've seen border controls reinstituted even between kind of old, if you like, West European EU member states, so France and Italy. So France is not admitting, has not been admitting people f across the France-Italy border. So that's been very, very tough. And so people have made these very tortuous and complicated journeys. People have, you know, slept out in the under the stars. People have not had enough water. There are very moving scenes on the island of Lesbos um, in Greece where thousands arrive every day and there is just absolutely no capacity to deal with them. So, you know, in answer to your question, Matt, I would say there's been, in many ways, the best of Europe, the warmth, the uh, humanitarian compassion, the inclusiveness but also some of the worst, the kind of xenophobia and the um, sense that we're protecting our own wealth against outsiders who don't deserve to share it. Mm -hmm. In many ways, Germany has uh, led the European Union by taking in a tremendous number of refugees. Are they going to face pressure because of these kinds of attacks to start to roll back some of those policies? And are other member states going to follow suit? Yes. I think Angela Merkel has in many ways been the surprising heroine of this story. And in some ways you can see why. I mean, just the optics of Germany creating barbed wire fences to keep refugees out would not look good. You know, the past history is all too present. But I must say, despite that, I would really give her credit for extraordinary leadership. And she's faced hostility within her own ranks for some time. Uh, and now, more recently, it's become very vo vocal and public. So there are attacks on her, there are criticism even from within her own cabinet. And yes, she's had to pull back so that she's already had to announce that refugees will not be able to bring their families, which in international law they're supposed to be entitled to do, obviously. Mm -hmm. She has announced that uh, refugees will no longer get cash, but they will get sort of support in kind. So it's making it tougher for people to sort of, you know, settle and adjust to a new life. And I have no doubt that um, there will be more and more pressure to limit entry. And uh, other EU member states are following suit. It must be said that actually right from the outset, just Germany and Sweden were the two countries who were shouldering the lion's share of the burden or the privilege, mm -hmm. I like to call it, but I suppose it's also a burden of, of hosting refugees, the lion's share disproportionately. Um, so other, you know, wealthy, settled, safe member states have been shamefully, in my view, um, ungenerous. So the UK, my own country, has accepted just you know several thousand Syrian refugees whereas a country like Turkey has nearly two million you know so mm -hmm. the contrast is stark so I think yes I think that we're seeing 
a lot of pushback in Germany, a lot of pushback within the EU, and of course pushback uh, on all the bordering states. There was an interview with a refugee in Paris that I, I watched in the New York Times. He said, uh, I don't feel safe in France anymore. Citizens in France aren't safe anymore, but we're mere asylum seekers. They have priority over us. What would you tell French citizens um, who are seeing this happen, not just now, but 10 months before that with the Charlie Hebdo attacks, about you know this nearly unchecked influx of people from an area that ha- is seeing a tremendous amount of, of war, of conflict, um, and uh, anti-Western attitude. It's a very complicated point you're making. I think it's certainly the case that um, people in France don't feel safe. It's, to me, ironic in some ways that France should have been the target because France... Um, has not actually had half as many people coming in as some of the other countries. So if you like, in terms of providing assistance to those who are fleeing ISIS, France has not played that much of a role, actually. France has not been as welcoming, and France is not such a popular destination precisely because people, refugees, don't feel that welcome there. So if you compare France with with Sweden, I say, or, or Germany, or even Austria, France has not been a great destination. But of course, France is actively involved in the combat and in the fighting and we know that you know the others have already been targeted you know Russia has been targeted and we've seen you know what happened in 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 the Middle East itself in Lebanon so Mm -hmm. I think that um that certainly now the the focus on France does does make people feel very unsafe and um you know, whether I, I wouldn't agree with the asylum seekers that they're less of a priority. I think, you know, every human being's life is equally valuable. Um, and just because you happen not to be a citizen doesn't make your life less valuable. And just because you've already been exposed to three and a half years of murderous civil war doesn't make you less of a priority for protection. Um, but of course, you know, it was inevitable that. Um, something like this would happen. I mean, those of us who work in this field have been saying for some time uh, that this humanitarian moment is a very precious and fragile one. I was just at a conference in Dublin two days ago where I gave a talk and I said to the audience of, you know, people, NGOs and policymakers working in the field of child migration, I said, you know, we have a real responsibility right now. This is not going to last this window. We have to really be very judicious in the policies we advance. And so I think that's that's the case in, in, in Europe too. So um, I do think that... Uh, you know, this is a very, very dangerous moment. Of course, the forces of the right and of exclusion have been been active right from the start of this, you know, led by, by the Prime Minister of Hungary, who famously said, you know, we are under attack. Christian Europe is under attack. Hungary is a Christian country. We don't have any mosques. We don't want any Muslims. And, of course, he was, unfortunately, speaking for many, you know. So... Um, this only adds fuel to that sort of fire. Here in the United States, President Obama approved the uh, about 10,000 uh, refugees to come to the United States. Um, he's now sought to increase that number, but obviously there's been a political backlash. In the wake of the uh, Paris attacks, now we're seeing more candidates uh, speak about how we should not be taking any Syrian refugees in. Um, What do you think about the way this has impacted politics here in the United States? Well, let me just go back to the start of your comment, Matt, and just slightly correct you. So the U.S. um, 
has always had an overseas refugee resettlement program. Mm -hmm. So there are two ways in which you can come into the U.S. as somebody needing protection from conflict. One is you come in as an asylum seeker, so spontaneously you arrive at the border or JFK or wherever, and you apply for asylum. Mm -hmm. And the second way is you come in already approved by international authorities as a refugee, an official refugee. You come in under the auspices of the official re refugee resettlement program. So the ceiling um, has been 70,000 overseas refugee resettled people per year for quite a while. After 9-11, in practice, the number went down dramatically, dropped right down to about 20,000, and it's been slowly creeping up, but never really reaching the top you know, threshold of 70,000. So earlier this year, uh, President Obama announced an increase because of the Syrian conflict to say that they would admit a maximum of 100,000, right? So it's a relatively small, in I mean, small or big, whatever, mm -hmm. it's an increase. Sure. Um, and he s specifically said, as you rightly pointed out, that 10,000 of those slots would be reserved for Syrians provided, of course, that they'd undergone all the necessary background checks, which I think, as John Kerry pointed out, could take up to two years. So it's mm -hmm. not a easy process to get into the US. And many of us have felt very critical of that very low number. You know, again, just to make the point in Lebanon, which is a country infinitely smaller, less prosperous, more troubled than the US, one in every four people in the Lebanon is a Syrian refugees, and yet they have opened their border mm -hmm. and accepted these people. And I already made the point about Turkey. Same could be said about Iraq and Egypt. So these are countries which are much more troubled than ours. And of course, Beirut was and, also suffered a, a terrible uh, terrorist attack just the day before what happened in Paris. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, you know, they are countries that are very troubled. And yet the humanitarian impulse has been very much in evidence. So, um, you know, the US has not been generous um, at all in, in what it's offered so far. That said, um, even that, as you quite rightly note, has uh, been subject to p political criticism. And so, um, yes, uh, there has been a knock-on effect of the Paris bombs already. Um, and uh, I, I just heard on the news this morning that, uh, uh, that Marco Rubio um, has said that no Syrian refugees should be allowed into the US at all. Um, and Jeb Bush apparently said, uh, I mean, just according to NPR, that uh, Syrians should only be allowed into the U.S. if they are Christians. Now, I find those comments quite alarming. First of all, the idea that you discriminate on the basis of someone's religion, that you assume that a Muslim Syrian seeking asylum would in any way be sympathetic to ISIS seems so contradictory. Um, these people are enormously vulnerable and targeted precisely because they refuse to join up with the kind of jihadi war. So it's a nonsensical approach. But also to kind of give legitimacy to that sort of religious discrimination seems quite terrifying to me in a, in a mainstream political candidate. Um, but unfortunately, these views are not unique to the Republican candidates in the US. We're hearing very similar views across Europe. When I think of the migrant crisis, uh, you know, I'm thinking of ramshackle boats coming across the Mediterranean. Uh, when we're talking about bringing uh, asylum seekers into the United States, you say this is a two-year process. Can you describe what that means? I mean, what is a, uh, do they first go to a, a refugee camp in Lebanon or Turkey or how, how does that work? Exactly. So um, as a matter of international law, you can't be a refugee unless you're outside your own country. Mm -hmm. 
So you have to be outside your own country. And it is worth, in brackets, remembering that we're talking about about 6 million Syrian refugees outside Syria. There are over 16 million still within Syria, of whom at least half are internally displaced. So those arguably are the people most at risk. But in any event, yes, so you have to be outside your country in order to be qualified for refugee protection. So typically people will be in the neighborhood, in the neighboring countries, Lebanon, Turkey, um, Iraq, and some of them are in camps in Jordan. Jordan, for example, a lot of Syrian refugees are in camps. In Lebanon, there are no camps. Um, Lebanon has not wanted to create more camps, partly because of the history of Palestinian camps, which, mm -hmm. of course, are with us 50 years or 60 years after their inception. So you don't have to be formally in a camp, but you have to be outside your country. And then UNHCR, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, which is the UN body responsible for protecting refugee populations, will interview people and determine what their status is and determine whether they are eligible for refugee protection under international law, the particular criteria. And if they determine that someone is eligible and does qualify, then they will be certified an official refugee. And then UNHCR typically creates a sort of priority list. So those who are sick, those who are most vulnerable, like unaccompanied children, those who are elderly, those maybe who have close ties. So they will be amongst the mass of people seeking and desperate to resettle in the US, there will be some who are at the, come to the head of the queue. Mm -hmm. And those are the ones then who will then be subjected to US security background checks, um, health checks, other checks of, you know, criminal convictions and, you know, a lot of rigorous checking before they're finally allowed to actually arrive. And how would you change current policy if you had the magic wand to uh, enact whatever you could? Let me say three things about that. I have thought about that. Number one, of course, I would try to really address the underlying precipitating factors, and this is not rocket science. While the conflict persists, while you have a murderous regime and a brutal civil war, while schools are closed, hospitals are closed, daily life is interrupted, people are going to flee. People are going to leave with their feet. We all would. Mm -hmm. So that has to be an enormously high international priority and enormously kind of sophisticated and dedicated diplomatic efforts have to be made to address that. And I know they are ongoing. I'm not sure how much energy has been put into them. I'm sure now much more is being put into them. So that's number one. Without a re resolution to the conflict, the flows of people coming out will not stop. Number two, I think we need to think much more rigorously about the humanitarian aid to those in the neighborhood. One of the reasons so many people are fleeing from the camps or from the neighboring area is because their life has become untenable. Mm -hmm. The UN agencies have only received about 30 or 40 percent of the funding they need just to support the refugees. So the World Food Programme in August announced it was cutting the allocation of rations, not increasing, but cutting the allocation of rations because they didn't have the money. Mm. There's no funding for schools. There's hardly any medical care and nothing but emergency medical care. There's safety issues. There's now an outbreak of, of polio and cholera. So without much more 
generous and rigorous international support for intervention in the area, people are not going to be able, want to stay in the camps and only those who really can't get out are going to stay there. Whereas if things had been better, they probably would have stayed, might have stayed longer. So that's number two, much greater and more organized humanitarian aid, much higher contributions from uh, the rich countries, if you like, th into the UN funds. And number three, I think we need to have a much more aggressive and well-organized and transparent resettlement policy. As I said earlier, I think it makes little sense to force people to put their babies and their lives onto these precarious vessels in the Mediterranean and risk death, or to tramp across Eastern Europe, as we've seen now is going to be wintry, freezing cold and wind and lack of any proper resources. Um, and then to have to walk to a point where you then have spent all your money on smugglers, you're destitute, your children are even more traumatized than they were before, and then you apply for assistance. It makes no sense. So much better to make life in the temporary accommodation more bearable and have a more aggressive resettlement policy. So have much higher numbers of people being resettled and then an incentive for people to stay where they are until the time for resettlement comes. Have an orderly resettlement program. After all, there's no real threat to Europe or to America. The numbers are still tiny. It's less than 1% of the population. And, of course, many argue, and I think Angela Merkel herself made this point, that Europe is an aging continent. You know, the demographic dividend of having young, enterprising, well-educated, generally, people enter your labor force is not to be underestimated. So it could be a win-win. Of course, there are going to be serious costs up front. But in the medium to long term, this could be very beneficial. And, um, you know, this is a new diaspora. I'm, I'm Jewish. You know, many people in my family talk about the Holocaust and how Jews are scattered, you know, from India, which is where I was born, to Latin America, to you name it. I mean, Syrians are going to be talking, saying the same thing, you know, these journeys to safety just to survive. And so we should be thinking about how to facilitate that, not how to block it. Well, Jacqueline, Baba, we will follow this closely and with great interest. Thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. Thank you for having me. Professor Baba's most recent book is Child Migration and Human Rights in a Global Age. You can find a link to it in our show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwalder and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter. 